Happy Tuesday and welcome back to another exciting episode of the Apollo 13 Minute, a show where each and every day, Monday through Friday, we go over one minute of probably the greatest space history movie ever made, the 1995 Ron Howard-directed feature, Apollo 13. I'm one of your hosts, Jim O'Kane of TVDads.com. And I'm your other host, I'm Chris Henry from the EAA Aviation Museum. Oh, Chris, there's so much going on in this minute. It's, uh, there's, there's a lot of, a lot of great, uh, Great dialogue, uh, a lot of pretty good special effects and things, and uh, it, it, one of my one of my favorite back and forth lines that you don't quite get, like the audience gets after about five seconds or so. Um, I do like where uh, uh, Swigert is talking to Ken Mattingly on the ground, and he said, "Boy, uh, I wish you were here to see it." And, <laughs> and Mattingly said, "I bet you do." <laughs> yeah, I always thought that was a pretty good clip. <laughs> Any anywhere but here, buddy. Yeah. So, <laughs> Uh, and uh, we get another, uh, you know, the, the obviously the feud is over because uh, uh, Fredo yells up the tunnel that uh, everything's everything's back uh, online and, and looking good. So uh, so he says, "Way to go, Jack!" That's that's pretty cool. Um, and then we get into uh, a, a, a forgivable a forgivable scene. There's this scene where the uh, uh, and another great line while while it's going on. Uh, we go from uh, the command module and and Jack being very happy that that the system's powered back up, but Retro butts in on the uh, mission control line and says that uh, we're looking at a typhoon warning on the edge of the prime recovery area, and it's a warning it could miss them. And so uh, Gene says, not only if their luck changes because everything else everything else has happened to them uh, before that, but if you, if you look at uh, at this particular minute where Retro is looking down at a picture, he's looking at a color picture of a typhoon, which uh, technically this isn't a typhoon because typhoons only hope happen in the Northwest Pacific. And this is the Southwest Pacific. So it's, it's not a, it's simply a cyclone, a cyclone, it's cyclonic action. Um, but you know, typhoon is a nice shorthand for people who think that hurricanes happen in the Atlantic and typhoons happen in the Pacific. It's a little more complicated that but the picture that he's looking at is a full color picture printed on a on glossy paper and uh they didn't have color uh in 1970 they didn't have color meteorological pictures uh hot off the presses it would look something similar to a, a black and white fax that had come down and be kind of grainy looking it wouldn't be as uh, photographically clear as that picture um i haven't I haven't found the specific source of that picture, but I get a strong feeling it's uh, a shuttle image. <laughs> that um, is uh, interesting that they, that's an error that they would make in that. Yeah, yeah, but you know, it's it's a movie, and they gotta they gotta show how it is. Um, say, so, you know, I've I've always wondered, you, Chris, you're in you're in you were you were you were in ATC, and you are doing piloting stuff. The uh, yeah. The weather stuff that they have, they always, you know, when you're when you're coming in for a landing, they ask you the different uh, ATIS information that you have Bravo or you have Hotel or Lima. You're basically, do you you have the most recent information from the airport of uh, of what the weather is? Yeah, yeah. Um, how much of that is uh, automatic, automated, and how much of it is there's uh, you know a meteorologist somewhere looking over a map and typing stuff in? Well, that's interesting that you uh, you asked that. Um, so the 
so we had the, it, like the airport I worked at. We had something called an AWOS, which was a system. There's actually a, an antenna out in the middle of the field where it's undisturbed, uh, and it recorded, um, you know, weather, wind, uh, you know, sky cover. It did all of it. Uh, temperature. I mean, you you name it was all incorporated into the system. Um, and that report is constant. I would say it's it's every uh, you know it probably updates every every minute maybe something like that. Now a, a weather report. Um, there are stations that are completely automated. Um, I actually had to go to a special class when I got hired as an ATC uh, to become a trained weather observer, um, and you have to go actually to uh, NOAA to get that done. Uh, it is the worst test I've ever taken in my entire career. Um, we used to joke that it was written by people who didn't make it as an air traffic controller and <laughs> went to work in the weather station instead. <laughs> so if you're listening at a weather station, I'm sure uh, you don't you you would disagree, but uh, that is the the common joke we had. Um, and uh, so becoming a, a trained weather observer, uh, what that does is actually allows you to override that automated system because sometimes uh as good as that system is it gets screwed up uh you know a hawk can go sit on the thing and it gets all messed up and you know goes haywire there's been times where it's saying it's you know uh completely overcast or 100 foot ceiling or something like that and you know and it's a beautiful blue day and it's because there's a you know there's a big bird out there sitting on the thing or something um or so 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 typically uh, you know, we monitor the weather conditions uh, each hour, and then uh, toward the end of the hour, you start kind of writing your your weather your your weather observation. Um, for example, I would share it. You put it out. I mean, uh, the automated weather system will automatically kick out the report, um, and it'll do it right around 50 to 55 minutes uh, into the hour, so a few minutes before the next hour. Uh, where uh, there's a a need for the for an actual weather observer is not just the cases of birds sitting on the antenna, but um, you know a lot of times uh, weather changes quicker than every hour. You know, so um, you would actually go in and cut what we call a special, and what that is is uh, hey something's changed enough that you need to know this. Um, so we would actually go in and cut a, what we call a special or special. Uh, and it would say, here's the change. You know, winds may have shifted big or uh, cloud cover, storm, weather, something like that, you know, that would make us go out and, and make a change. Um, and then you'd have to make the announcement of, you know, uh, this is the information that's now current. Uh, and you have to cut a new METAR. Uh, you have to cut a new uh, 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 recording. So, um, you know, it, it suddenly information papa is no longer. <laughs> you know, you've got to go yeah. to the next one. So... <laughs> Um, it was kind of interesting. I, it was, um, of course, I never had a typhoon warning. I did have a tornado. Um, wow. I uh, had a tornado when I was working in the tower. I got a call uh, from the radar station uh, that uh, that was at the uh, airport next door. And they said that, uh, you know, we have a cyclone uh, activity heading your direction. And um, technically... I think it was, well, technically it was still considered a cyclone because it didn't touch down. Yeah. Um, but I got a heck of a cool picture of it going right down our runway. We we closed <laughs> the airport and evacuated the tower. And uh, they told us that the tower cab was safe. Um, 
sure yeah, we didn't have to <laughs> evacuate the tower but we could if we needed to and uh we did because we feared that they all they would find was us in those windows uh, a couple miles away <laughs> you know so uh we went down to the very sturdy brick firehouse that was just down the road so um but weather forecasting was interesting and and from a control tower from an elevated uh standpoint you could watch you know and i was in indiana so you could see it coming for miles you know it oh, was yeah. real. i mean you could see 10 miles easy you know I, uh, from the tower i was at in elkhart indiana you could actually look north and look up into michigan you know so um yeah, weather was weather was just amazing to watch. That was probably one of my favorite parts of the job was uh, was watching the weather phenomena that, that occurred up there. Yeah, and it, you know, out here, out here in the Great Plains in the in the Midwest and uh, and down here in the Southwest, there's so much weather. It's it's amazing how yeah. fast, like yeah. you said, how fast it can change. Um, I can remember back in the '80s working. Uh, I was working in an insurance company in North Dallas, and we were in this really tall building, uh, and but everything around us were you know, mostly flat warehouses and stuff. And uh, I was working there, I was working there on a weekend, and uh, we, we saw a bunch of clouds move in from the from the north, and they had that, that bowl, those bowl shapes, you know, before a tornado appears. Uh, they were all these big hanging bowls hanging out yeah. at the bottom of the, yeah. and the sirens started going off. <laughs> and we were, you know, we're, we're 15, 20 stories up in a building. There's really no place to go. So, we just we ran into uh, the bathrooms were in the center, you know, near the where the elevator core was, and we saw about four tornadoes just spin out of uh, out of the clouds and head uh, a little bit north of us, um, and we just kind of hunkered down in the uh, in the bathrooms, uh, and you could hear the cables in the in the elevator shaft because I think they they had like vents or something in the roof. But you could hear the cables slapping around inside the elevator shaft because the pressure was changing so much in the wow. building. And the glass inside the building was kind of rocking in and out. You could hear this womp, 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 womp sound. And uh, it was uh, – I've been, I've been closer to tornadoes, but that's, that's probably the most terrifying uh, bit of extreme weather I've ever been in just, you know, because I figured they're not – it wasn't going to blow the building away, but we were going if to – if we did lose stuff, there were going to be an awful lot of glass flying around. Um, oh yeah yeah that was uh yeah it was it was an interesting uh you know the mother nature is always gonna win i mean yeah oh yeah yeah you know people always ask me about what was the worst part you know when i hear you're an air traffic controller they're always like you know oh what was the you know was that crazy i always hear it's a nutty job and you know and and uh it's crazy stressful and you know on a normal day like on a normal day if you're stressed out like you're doing something wrong like you you shouldn't be stressed out on a normal everything, you know, is clicking yeah. kind of day. Um, for me, the days that really concerned me were weather days. Those were days with, uh, uh, especially in the winter when we had snow removal crews on the runway. Um, because now you've got runways that are still open. You've got air traffic coming in. Um, and you have, you know, you have personnel out there. Oh, yeah. Um, so that those were the... Those were the more tense days for me. That that's when you went home and you had a beer uh, after a, <laughs> a day with. And if there's other air traffic controllers out there, you know, I'd love to hear if that's how you felt. But uh, for me, the snowy days, you know, you've got kind of sometimes the blowing snow, so lower visibility, and you've got personnel near those runways. To me, that was always the uh, the more stressful time. And um, you know, that was. I'll, I'll take air traffic any day, you know, as opposed to <laughs> mixing air and ground traffic together. That. Uh, 
that gets a little a little intense. <laughs> yeah. Did Did you ever get the chance to uh, to work Oshkosh during AirVenture? No, no. I I did work traffic going into Oshkosh. What I mean by that is, um, you know, if you look at a map, depending on where you're coming from, Elkhart, Indiana is a good stopping point for people on their way to uh, to Oshkosh. Uh, it was basically just outside of South Bend, Indiana, which, you know, South Bend's just not far from Chicago. I mean, it's all kind of feeding into each other. Uh, and there's a VFR corridor right up near Chicago, so a lot of people would shoot for that. So we'd get a lot of people coming in for fuel stops and stuff like that. So, I, no, I never worked like Oshkosh, you know, Tower or Ripon or Fisk or anything like that. But but your traffic did increase in that area around Oshkosh time. I mean, you know, we'd get P-51s and stuff like that. Good year <laughs> blimp a couple times, which is a lot of fun. Wow! Yeah, just amazing. Oh, I must all kind of uh, in, intricate things that you nor- don't normally do. It's like, well, what do I do with the blimp? And <laughs> hey, yeah, you know, blimps. Uh, uh, it, they're interesting because they're they're not going to outrun anything. So um, you just control everybody around them and let the blimp come in whenever he's ready. And uh, it's, <laughs> it's uh, you know, it's weird. Like you, you kind of, you know, the harder airplanes or aircraft. To f- for new controllers, the two hardest things you had to deal with was a blimp or a helicopter, you know, because the helicopter, you know, you're trying to think in your head, you get too far into your head of, what do I tell this helicopter, you know, because he doesn't have to fly a pattern, you know, and yeah. you get too far into your head, you know, you just keep it simple, <laughs> tell him to call two miles out, when you see him two miles out, you know, tell him to cross the runway and land on his ramp at his discretion, and, you know, <laughs> keep it nice and simple, the blimp. You know, just keep everybody away from the blimp. The blimp's going to go about 35 miles an hour, and uh, you'll see him for about an hour as he works his way to you. And um, and they like to park, uh, you know, usually in the grass, sometimes next to the windsock or something, and, you know, be prepared for a lot of jokes about our new windsock and stuff like that. <laughs> but uh, uh, never put a Learjet behind the blimp. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> Wow. Well, uh, the first, uh, so we get past the, uh, as it turned out, the, tri- the typhoon never, never appeared in, uh, in the recovery area, fortunately. Um, but we get to the second part where, uh, they're getting ready to photograph, um, the, the, the service module. They don't do it in this particular minute, but, uh, it's interesting watching them kind of give it a shove to get it out of the way so they can get a good picture. So, uh, Jim Lovell is in the, uh, He's in the LEM and he's working the RCS thrusters, and uh, Swigert has he all all Swigert's going to do is jettison the uh, the service module. He doesn't have any power turned on on anything there, and uh, so he he knocks back the switches. And Jim is basically he gives it a, as they're as they're uh, about to jettison. He does an upward thrust inside the LEM, so that's called a, that's a positive translate. He's going. He's pushing through the top of the limb and pushing the service module. And once uh, Jack throws the jettison switch, he reverses the the limb and pulls the uh, the command module away. So the so the service module has that uh, momentum imparted to it, so it'll move away from the command module. So what we're left with is we've got the command module still attached to the uh, ascent stage and with the attached descent stage of the limb which it was never designed to fly like that. It, ne- it was never expected to fly like that. But here we are in one of the weirder um, configurations of the space program. Uh, but uh, a beautiful a beautiful scene there. And uh, great job by Digital Domain in, in the, uh, filming those models. Um, it's, uh, 
I, I, this would be hard to, I, I keep thinking about people who didn't grow up during the Apollo era or, or at least are not familiar if they never built models of the Apollo. It, it would be difficult to explain what this, what they were doing and what this looked like. But fortunately, I think having, uh, having the, uh, the discussion between Jim Lovell and his son at the beginning of the movie kind of explained, oh, okay, now I see what the parts are and, uh, and how you know how things are going so we just we watch them uh detach and move away uh one thing i'm really happy about this in the end of at at the end very end of this minute in the last couple of seconds we get to see the command module and the lunar module connected together and it's something that most people don't realize that the lunar module and the command module when they were connected together uh their front doors that are, are about a 90 degree roll from each other um a lot of times when they were, um, when there's like artist conceptions of what the uh, command command module and the lunar module looked like when they were connected, they usually draw them so that they're kind of nose to nose. That the uh, the command module hatch and the uh, lunar module's uh, front door are both pointing the same direction. But this is the actual way it looked. It was at a 90 degree angle, uh, so that they weren't interfering with each other. Mostly because if they had to do it, you know, if something was wrong with the uh, docking collar and they couldn't connect, uh, or they could connect but they couldn't open the open the docking tunnel, uh, they had room to open the hatch on the command module and let people uh, transfer outside, go out through the door and come in the other way. Uh, if you look at the any pictures from the Apollo Nine mission, that was tested out to see, you know, can you uh, open the front of the lunar module, look outside and, and see the command module door. And there's there's pictures of Rusty Swigert and uh, uh, Dave Scott uh, outside uh, their respective ships uh, and, you know, looking at, looking at each other. So it's definitely uh, a possible thing. But it's, it's nice seeing that's that's a nice bit of accuracy in this movie. And, you know, it, it, they didn't follow with artist conceptions of how they're how they were connected. I like that part. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you you've built you've built Apollos, haven't you, Chris? Oh yeah, yeah. I've built a few models for sure. Yeah, they're uh, they're a lot of fun. They're mostly <laughs> there's there's a lot of inaccuracies. Most I grew up with the Ravel models, and um, the <laughs> the the problem that Ravel had was they were they were designing the molds for them in 1966, so they're mostly like block one look. Right. But they, but they were trying to make you know they were trying to catch up with what they uh, what they would look like, and they, and they came out with later ones afterwards. And, and of course nowadays. They make photorealistic models. I mean, you can get yeah, it's it's crazy. I yeah, mean, I, I did a lunar module and a command module, and and uh, yeah, there's, I mean, yeah, but there's people that have gone. You know, my thing is I like to make them look pretty good, some interior detail to call out, you know. But there, are, there's people that have gone all out and done all the internal systems and wiring, and yeah, it's the... it's you know. It's crazy. And then you button it up and you can't see it. You know, it's like, oh. <laughs> but you know it's in there. It's, yeah. That's true. That's true. <laughs> yeah, I'm. I'm just always. I, I'm impressed by those. I'm just. I. I could never do that. I'm. I get that way about very few things. I used to be uh, a lot bigger into model railroading, and I'd always try to get. I was obsessed with getting the rails right on a railroad. I mean, <laughs> other people do rolling stock. I would always try to do the uh, the landscape the best as I could and what you know how much amount of rust there was on a given right of way the high iron versus the uh, uh, yeah. the switch yards and things like that and I just I you know what what kind of uh, mix you should use on the uh, to get the right kind of grime or dust or rust 
you yeah, can, model, you can, model railroading is a slippery slope, man. That, that, yeah, yeah. It's, I could very easily fall down that rabbit hole and never come outside again. <laughs> it's it's trouble. I have a I have a good friend up in uh, in Pennsylvania who does. Uh, there's this stuff lately, and I never got into it, but uh, there's this stuff lately where you can you make this scale model grass, so you can make like tall weeds and stuff, and you use an electrostatic charge to pull the grass through like a very fine mesh so that the grass comes out and it's oh, wow. even and, and it's all you know ho scale grass which is like hair it's it's like cat hair that's ridiculous <laughs> it's got the right color and you know he, he has this he has this thing and uh it, you know tommy i'm sorry i'm bringing this up but <laughs> it's it's uh you know and, and like you can do it you can color it and, and all kinds of stuff i've i've never gotten that far into it but i could if i if i had, if I had fair time i could get into that Wow. Well, um, we've got. Speaking of going far afield, um, it's oh, we've covered a lot of stuff. But there's a. This is this is a pretty good minute. There's a lot of people in here we're seeing uh, that we haven't seen earlier on in. You know, we haven't seen them in a while. I mean, Mark McClure is in this one, and Gary Sinise, and uh, so we're we're getting back more with the uh, with the full ensemble of the cast. So if you're if you want to see a heavy ensemble uh, minute, one seventeen is a good one, and this next one coming up. Uh, for folks who want to talk about, we've talked about everything here from weather to, uh, gosh, I, you know, I, I, I can't even go over all the stuff we've been through in the last, last 20 minutes. But uh, if you'd like to talk with us, and we always would like to hear from you. I know Chris wants to hear from uh, other uh, ATC brethren who, who've worked with, who've been up in the tower and worked these, worked these many hours. Um, but if you'd like to uh, talk back with us, we're always interested in hearing you on social media over at Facebook at Apollo 13 Minute Mission Control or on Twitter at Apollo 13 Minute. Uh, we're coming down to the end and we've got some guests coming up. We're just working on scheduling right at the moment, but we've got some really good guests coming up. So uh, uh, keep in touch with us. Our previous 117 minutes are always available at our big site, Apollo13Minute.com, Apollo13Minute.com or on any of your favorite uh, podcatchers like Apple Podcasts or Google Play or Spotify or any of those things. We have them out there. Uh, but we will continue watching uh, as we're coming to the very end of this mission, uh, or the last moments in space uh, coming up. It uh, looks like we're coming up on, speaking of things coming up, it looks like we're coming up on loss of signal about 30 seconds. So we'll see you here tomorrow on the Apollo 13 Minute. <laughs>